Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. We're going uh, in, the, in our Bibles to Philippians. The title of the message today is My Prayer. My Prayer. In Philippians chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11, we hear the Apostle Paul's prayer for these people that he loves so dearly. We can all grow together as we pray together. Love, concern, prayer, it all goes hand in hand. When we're new in the faith or perhaps young in the faith, one of the ways that we learn how to pray is by praying with others. So when you, you come close with others and you listen to someone who's been walking with the Lord for years and you listen to them pray, and I've told you about you know, members in my own family where I almost want to open my eyes and are they, are they actually like seeing heaven as they pray because they sound so familiar with the Lord. Reverence blended with worship with familiarity. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's the, it's the walk of faith. When we pray with brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we learn about them. We learn about what they love. We learn about how they view God, how they view themselves, how they view others. Can I be honest with you? Praying with others is one of the greatest joys of my life. gathering in small group and praying together, <laughs> gathering with the men yesterday and praying together, letting the scriptures guide our prayers, gathering with guys from time to time, different locations early in the morning and praying together. Man, it's been some of the greatest joys of my journey in faith is just being next to others and going to the throne of grace boldly together praising God, bringing our requests to the Lord, sometimes laughing together, sometimes crying together as we share the blessings and burdens of life. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscles of omnipotence. It's prayer. If you read the book of Acts, Try to find something the Lord did without the church praying first. He responded to their prayers. Paul was filled with thanksgiving. He was filled with joy. And his prayer for the Philippians, it helps us to explore his heart for others, and it will help us learn how should we be praying. Remember, Paul was writing from prison. Often, I can fill a prayer with, list with, you know, will help, you know, my back and my failing eyes and all these different things. And Paul is in prison and listen to his prayer. Listen to what he says. Just there in verse 9 is where we'll begin. And he says, and it is my prayer Get me out of prison. No. That your love may abound more and more 
with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And all God's people said, amen. The title of the message, my prayer. What we're going to unpack is just simply this. Paul is saying, I pray that you will. And we can say, I pray that we will. We can say, I pray that I will. But he's writing and he's saying, this is my prayer for you, these beloved Philippians. There's four main areas of his prayer. First of all, he says, I'm praying that you will abound in love. In verse 9. More and more, just flowing over, just overflowing. Paul acknowledges that their love, we've already read of it, they have love. They have demonstrated this love. It's a radical love that they have. They love the Lord. They love the apostle. They loved one another. And it's overflowing beyond measure. It's true love to their immediate family, to their church family, and to the community around them and to those outside of them. But Paul doesn't say, you've done enough. Pat yourselves on the back. It's all good. Coast. Retire. No such thing. He says, don't live for the status quo. Don't start looking around like runners do sometimes. I I think I've got this race, and they look this way, and they get passed on the other side. You've seen those races happen? People celebrate too early? One guy on a bike, woo, mom, I'm going to win. He lost. Second place. Paul is saying, hey, keep pressing on to the mark. Don't settle. And this is loving. He's not being legalistic. He's not, you know, comparing them to others. He's saying, keep your eye on the prize, on the goal. Keep your eye on Jesus and keep measuring your love as a response of worship to his. You know, love is the leading fruit of the Spirit. And it is the fruit that enables all the other spiritual gifts and virtues to be exercised properly. As followers of Jesus Christ, can we ever love too much? I mean, genuine Christ-like love. Yeah, if it's just too much. I've showed too much love in my life. I can't say that. Plenty of ways I should have shown more love here. I should have been more honest and confronting and loving here. I should have been quiet and more loving here. We can't ever love too much. We can't ever overdo it because the Lord Jesus set the standard, and we talked about that last week, with agape love, this divine love. So he says, I want you to abound in love. And then what he does, unless we start thinking, you know, so all we need is love, love, love. That's it. Well, what does that mean exactly? He says, I want you to abound in love more and more with knowledge. I want it overflowing. Your love, I want it to be grounded in knowledge. This is doctrinal and practical truth. He's saying to them, I want your knowledge, your understanding to be whole. 
to be complete, to be precise. I want you to be correct. Biblical knowledge must be gained through experience and study. These two areas go together. It comes by diligent study and by application. John Calvin said, this is a knowledge, what Paul is talking about, that is full and complete, not a knowledge of all things. Okay, that immediately flushes all of us. I want you to have all knowledge. Okay, that's the Lord. One could argue that social media has actually imploded a generation because we're trying to function with the knowledge of what everyone is thinking and doing and everywhere. You know, I'm getting ready to have breakfast. Okay, I needed to know that. You know, and and all of this is broadcast and there's some helpful things about it. But can we really handle all of the knowledge? I know for me, going, this is our third church that we've served in in full-time ministry in. And when social media came out, I was like, wow, there's, you know, people I love from the first ministry that were, you know, students in my youth ministry. And I I now can be reconnected. And then the last church and I can stay connected. And then there's this church and then there's my family. And I'm like, whoa, I'm going down here. I'm overwhelmed. I can't still live in four places. People I grew up with in Wisconsin, this is overwhelming. College friends and families. I'm like, whoa, I can't handle it all. I guess I better be where I am and serve the Lord here and care in a a perspective way. How do I know, care, and love for people? 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul says to Timothy, he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker. That, That is one approved after being tested. A worker who has no need to be ashamed how are you going to do that, Timothy? How are you going to do that, Brian? How are you going to do that, elders? How are you going to do that, teachers? How are you going to do that, men, as you lead your families? But you're going to have to rightly handle the word of truth. Take the word of God and rightly divide it. Rightly understand it. Cut it straight. And Paul is not hiding it from Timothy. He's saying, hey, you're going to have to work at this, son. But you've got to grow in knowledge. I want you to have knowledge. And then he says, with knowledge, he says, now you need to do something with that knowledge and you need discernment, with all discernment. This is spiritual perceptiveness. This is judgment. Oh, don't we live in a world now? Don't judge me. Aren't you Christians? You're not supposed to judge anybody? Condescending is very different than being discerning. Condescending, Matthew 7, 1, the the very famous verse now, Judge not that you be not judged. That, that's taken over John 3.16, for God so loved the world, in most people's understanding. It's to not be condescending. It's to not look down your nose at others, like the Pharisee praying, Lord, I thank thee that I'm not like this bum over here. Well, here's what I do, and I do this, and I don't do that. That's judging. That's putting himself, he was in the place of God saying, I'm obviously good and he's obviously rotten. And Jesus said, actually, he went home justified. His prayer was heard. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Humble, honest, and open before the Lord. And he received. The other guy, just Jesus said, he prayed with himself. And anybody that was listening, wow, I wish I could pray like that. Not said Jesus. Jesus didn't say that. I'm like, no, 
he missed the point of prayer altogether. Discernment is the ability to take truth, to take knowledge, and what do you do with it? How do you rightly apply it to life? This is the only place in the New Testament where this word is used. So it's an important word. As we grow in the knowledge of the truth, then our ability to discern error becomes sharpened. Discernment is the capacity of understanding combined with the ability to apply what we've learned. So we have an understanding, but what do you do with it? You know anybody that is super, super brilliant, intellectual, super smart, and when they try to explain that or teach people that, everybody in the class is like, I have no idea what they said. I'm actually more confused now than before when I started this class. Can I please give my money back? I'm sure they understand it, but I have no idea what they said or how to apply it. So there's knowledge, but then how do you apply that knowledge to situations? How do you apply that knowledge to teaching? How do you apply that knowledge to a culture that you live in? How do you apply that knowledge in your family? How do you apply that knowledge to your own thinking and motives? How do you apply that knowledge to your marriage and your relationship? And how do you apply that knowledge to parenting? To being a grandparent that pleases the Lord. So it's one thing to know what is right to do. There's another thing that you actually know how to do what's right. The what and the how. Where does this apply? How does this apply? Sometimes we have to be careful when we're trying to help someone and meet a need. What actually is the best way to meet someone's need? You might think, well, here's the way I can help them. But then when you step back from it or you get counsel, you find out actually you're enabling disobedience and rebellion. Oh, that's not what I was trying to do. Yeah, but that's what was being done. Oh, well, I guess I need some more. I need to grow in the area of discernment. I'm going to have to dive in. I'm going to have to study more. I'm going to have to grow more so that I better understand, Lord, how do you want me to function in this relationship or relationships where you've placed me so that I am bringing honor and glory to you? Our love must abound with knowledge and with discernment. Steve Lawson says it this way. He says, genuine love never operates in a fog. Authentic love requires penetrating discernment into the real needs of people as they find themselves in real life situations. Okay, so when we read this, what Paul's praying for, he has in mind there are specific situations in Philippi and you have the knowledge, but you're not applying this knowledge. And when you're on the outside looking in, that can be real sticky when you step in to help someone and they don't receive it as help. You can see, you know, the two ladies are at odds. And how is he best going to help them? How are the people in there going to help them and not just get mud on the face? I tried to help. I've told you about the cats. When we were, you know, I was, what, eight years old, and we made a trip, and we were staying in somebody's house in New Jersey. And all week we were there. My mom and I were staying at this house, and my dad and my sisters were at uh, an event. So there we were, and these cats were just all week, just they hated each other. And I was just thinking, hey, 
I, I think I can solve this problem. They just need to get together. They just need to work this out. And the day that we were going to leave, I grabbed one of the cats and I went to the back. Everybody's saying goodbyes out in the front and I grabbed one cat and I went into the kitchen and I was just going to make it happen. I was going to get it done. Counseling session, that was my first one for anybody right there. And all of, everybody in the house and everybody heard was, you know, it was a fray. And I learned uh, that didn't work. And suddenly everybody's coming like, what are you doing? What's your kid doing? And what's wrong with you? And it was a mess. It didn't work. I had a, I had a desire to help. But I didn't have knowledge, and I had zero discernment, and it didn't work. There's been times when I've tried to help people, counsel people, and it hasn't worked out well. People haven't listened. People have remained rebellious, whether it's marriages, parenting, life, spiritual counseling, struggles with homosexuality, all of these different areas where here's the truth, here's the best way I can present it, and it falls on deaf ears. I wish every counseling session that I ever had with anybody and every sermon would have been the way I met with uh, Nick, came into my office at the last church. He said, you know, Pastor Brown, I have a question. And I was starting to explain and I was teaching. He's like, oh, now I get it. Thank you. And he walked out of my office. And I was like, now why can't every single session be like that? It was like angels singing, heaven opened. He understood it, and he walked out, and I was like, wow. That's what I had in mind going into ministry was that. Now, he set the bar very high for all of my counseling sessions from here on out. Here's some questions we probably should ask. As we think about abounding in love, with knowledge and all discernment, am I pursuing a knowledge of Christ and his word with passion? Does that, does that sum you up? Does that describe you? Are you a person who's pursuing a knowledge of Christ and his word with passion? Are you one who is currently valuing Christ above everything else? Because that's what Christians do. Perfectly? No. But in our heart, that's what we aim to do. That's what we long to do. Do I, do we, do you love to do good things or gospel-centered things? Good things or gospel-centered? Do you hear the difference? Someone in need? Here you go. Here's, here's five. Here's $10. Here's, here's some help. Okay, that's good. Nothing wrong with that to help them. But what about the gospel? One will help immediately meet a need. The other is an eternal, and they both must go hand in hand. We doing good things as a church, or are we doing gospel-centered things? Think about that. Paul says, number two in verse 10, he says, I'm praying that you not only approve or abound in love, but that you will approve what is excellent. Approve what is excellent. Well, how long do we have to do that? Well, until the day of Christ. The finish line for you and for believers. And here's this, I love this Greek word, dokamazo. It, it, it means to approve. It means to try the things which differ. This word in the original, you know, 2,000 years ago in that culture was used to refer to the process of testing metals 
and testing coins to see whether they met specific standards. In our day, you hand somebody a 20, 50, $100 bill, and what do they do? They pull the pen out. They wait and they watch. They're testing it by a standard. Well, that's what they did by these individuals that went around and they tested. The Christians at Ephesus, were in, they were instructed by John to try to test the spirits in John chapter, 1 John 4. They weren't to be taken in, and nor should we, by everything that's Christian. I don't know, it's a Christian church. He's a Christian speaker. I don't know, he's on YouTube. He said he loved Jesus. He used the Bible. Okay, don't take in everything that's said. You have to test it. You have to try it like the Bereans did. You have to test everything by the Scriptures. Some things are clearly good. Some things are clearly evil. It's easy to see, well, that's good. Well, that's bad. But not everything. Some things are gray areas. And so what Paul is saying, I want you to prove what is excellent. Approving excellent things is better. It's stronger than just determining, well, what's bad and what's good. Paul is saying, I want you to do what's best. You hear this? Don't settle for simply, well, I didn't do evil. I didn't do bad. I wasn't wrong. What I said to them wasn't wrong, but was it the best thing that you could have said to them? Did you say the right thing at the right time in the right way? Well, then maybe it wasn't approving what is excellent. Maybe you approved what was subpar. And Paul is saying, I'm praying that you will approve what is excellent. Paul is saying, don't, don't, have, the, don't have the standard for your life and what you do. Well, is this harmful to me? Can I do this and it not harm me? Okay, that, that's fine. That's good. But he says, I want you to go up in that and I want you to say, is this helpful to me? Is this helpful to others? Is this helpful for gospel-centered things, not just good things? Is this helpful? If I make this decision, if we do this as a family, if we go here, if we practice all these different things, Paul is saying, I'm praying that you will approve what is excellent. What does that mean, Paul? He's saying, well, I want you to be pure, to be sincere. It's a word that means to be examined in sunlight and found pure. Literally, the word means without wax, to be pure, without error. It's authenticity versus hypocrisy. It's genuine versus fake. You ever bought something and it was fake? We were in Mexico on a mission trip. We were getting ready to leave. We were walking down the street. Uh, someone that was with us was like, look at this bag. Look at this Tommy Hilfiger bag. It's just a great bag. I've been looking for a bag. And I was looking over his shoulder and I said, that's great. Tommy Hilfiger. That's amazing. <laughs> and he's like, wait a second. And he looked, there it was, finger. And I was like, yeah, I don't think that's genuine unless they forgot how to spell their company name. He's like, oh man, we walked on. I've told you before when uh, we picked up a crib when Emma was on the way and Ginger was pregnant with Emma and we we're like getting the baby room ready and so we had a crib and, and then by the time Sophie came along, Ginger wanted to change the colors and she wanted to, you know, the wood and everything. She didn't, we had about seven different shades of furniture in the room and she's like, let's let make it all white. I want you to paint it all white. Okay, so you got to sand off the stain and prime it and everything. Well, when I sanded that crib, I hadn't seen it before, but when I took all the finish off, there was all the putty 
all over the thing. And we had got it secondhand. We didn't buy it from a new store. We got it secondhand to some place in Kentucky and taken it to Illinois. But when I took all the finish off, then I saw all of the divots and the corrections all over that thing that somebody took a broken down crib and they had patched it all up and they stained it and they sold it and it looked great. It was covered up. This word means without wax. It, it was something that they would take a, a vase or something, and if it had a blemish, then they would put wax in it, filler, bondo, for some of you in the auto, auto industry, right? Fill it up, sand it, pass it off as without blemish. But when the sun came out and warmed up that pottery, what happened to the wax? Oh, there's, a, there's a big divot in my gift I gave for my wife. What in the world? I didn't see it. It's playing a part. It's, it's not sincere. It's, it's not without wax. It's fake. So Paul is saying, I want you to be sincere that when pressures, when trials come in your life and that pressure begins to pour down on you, that what is revealed is genuine grace the work of the Holy Spirit, genuine faith, and trials test us. They try us. He says, I want you to be pure. I want you to prove what is excellent, be pure, and I want you to be blameless. No hypocrisy and no offense. I want you to be blameless, to be inoffensive people. Now, loved ones, the gospel is absolutely offensive. Let's get that clear. We can't live in 2022 or any other year for that matter and with the gospel of Jesus Christ not offend people. You're mean, you mean to tell me that I am not good enough to make it to heaven? Well, what God would ever send me a good person to a place called hell? If that is your definition of God, then I have no use for him. Have you ever heard someone say that? Oh. Okay. What actually is it to sin then? By whose standard do we live? Have you ever told a lie? What do you call a person who tells a lie? A liar. Have you ever in a fit of rage or excitement or frustration taken God's name? Oh my, and everybody says it now as if it's just common. Gee, God. The Bible says that's blasphemy. You're taking the name of God and would you be upset if somebody did that and they used your mom's name or your wife's name or your child's name, but people use the creator's name and have no second thought about it? The Bible says that's blasphemy. Most people will say, well, at least I've never, I've never killed anybody. <laughs> I should, be, I should be cleared for heaven with that. And then Jesus walks the earth and says, but if you ever hated anyone in your heart, have you hated someone? As if you're the gold standard, as if you are perfection, if you are holy, have you ever hated someone? And Jesus says, then you've committed murder in your heart. Should a person who has blasphemed, lied, you ever taken anything that didn't belong to you? A thief? A murderer at heart? That's four. 
We went right over number one, put God first in everything all the time. What should God do with these rebellious human beings bearing his image that have lied about him and broken his commands and committed treason against him? What should he do? Does that person deserve heaven? No. I deserved hell. But what did he do? The kids just sang about it this morning. He made a way for me. And he came and was born, and we celebrate his birth, and he lived the life that you and I could never live, perfect, sinless. Not one command did he ever break. And he, the innocent, was crucified in my place and in your place. And they buried him and he rose again. They couldn't keep him in the tomb. And he ascended and he will come again so that you, so that I can be forgiven. This is the gospel. This is why we want to do good. So that someone will say, why? Are you blessing me because I've been blessed? Why are you showing grace to me? Why are you forgiving me? Why are you being kind to me? Because I can never be more kind than God has been to me in Christ. That's why. And I deserve hell. But he has shown his love in such a way that he was punished in my place. And so I am in him. And if you have repented of your sin and trusted in him, then you are sheltered under the shadow of his wing because he was punished. You won't have to be punished. And Jesus says it this way, you fall on the rock in repentance and you'll be crushed. Your sin will crush you, but he will heal you, bind you up, adopt you, redeem you. He will take you for his own. If you stand and resist his salvation and his mercy and his grace and his love and forgiveness, then he will come in judgment and that stone that could have been your salvation will crush you in judgment. The choice is not, will there be punishment? The choice is, who was punished? Is it Jesus for you, or is it you for you? But we, sin must be punished. The gospel is offensive. Paul is saying we cannot mitigate that, but we must be blameless. We must be, with our lives, inoffensive. This is one of the qualifications given for pastors, given for elders, for leaders in the church. Be blameless. Accusations can be made, but they cannot stick. When it's borne out, when it's tested out, an accusation is made, it's found to not be true. That we are kept for the day of Christ, that when Jesus returns for his bride, the church, then Paul is saying, be inoffensive until this day. Keep this Keep your eye on this day when Jesus returns. That glorious day is the next event on the church calendar when Jesus returns for his bride. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. It matters. Oh, that we would be pure and blameless. So a question about, well, how do I evaluate this in my own life about, am I, am I a person who approves what is excellent? 
Am I praying for other believers the way Paul prayed for the Philippians? Am I, are we as a church, are we as families, are we choosing the best? Are we striving against sin so that we live in purity and in holiness until the day of Christ? Can that be said of us? Can Can I legitimately, truthfully say that is the course of my life, the pattern of my life? Paul says the third way I pray for you is this. Verse 11, that you will abide in Christ. I pray that you will abide in Christ. For Jesus said, without him, we can do nothing. To abide in Christ. Abound in love, approve what is excellent, abide in Christ. Mark chapter 3 and verse 14, I love this scripture because it shows us the window into what discipleship is. And Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach. You see the process of discipleship there. I'm calling you to myself. I want you to be with me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to to learn from me. I want you to be with me. And there's a point for why you're going to be with me that I will launch you one day. I'm not going to stay with you for perpetual decades or years or generations. He gave three years and he left and said, I'll send you my spirit and my spirit will never leave or forsake you. I will be with you. But I'm sending you out. And he would teach them to abide in him, to be with him. Isn't that something that you perhaps look forward to about the holidays as being with loved ones? And then you start thinking, well, there are some loved ones that's a little challenging to be with them. Sometimes there's painful aspects of family gatherings. But to be with, to abide, to remain. Paul says, I want you to be filled up with the fruit of righteousness. This is fruitfulness that begins at the moment of our salvation, the moment we are converted. In Christ, we are made complete. We are fulfilled, filled up. We're not lacking some. Okay, so there are some who say, you need, have you you received the second blessing, so-called? Oh, you've been saved, but have you received the Holy Spirit, the second blessing? You've got part one. Have you gotten part two yet? Paul understands you have been given everything, okay? You're not saved by grace, and then it turns into works is how you maintain your life in Christ, and you better keep performing or you'll lose out. That's not a biblical picture of salvation and grace. Okay, so let's, let's put this in terms. How would you understand this? If somebody adopted a child, they say, we'll adopt you into our family. You need parents. We'll be your parents. We'll adopt you into our family. That sounds loving, that sounds gracious, that sounds wonderful, and we can rejoice in that until we hear the person, those parents are saying, now, if you don't keep this standard, that standard, the other standard, if you disobey here, if you don't perform here, then we are going to send you back to where we picked you up. Suddenly, it doesn't sound like love anymore. That sounds like religion. I must perform for God to bless me, continue blessing me, to fill me with the Spirit. He, I, need to, I need to earn it somehow. But aren't we kind of wired that way? Somebody gives you something, you're like, oh, now I owe them. 
grace. It's very different than we adopted you, we love you, you're part of the family. Now, because you're part of the family, let me, let me teach you. We're gonna, you're gonna make your bed every day. You're gonna help clear the things from the table. Whatever the projects are around, not to keep in the family. You're gonna grow up in responsibility because you are part of the family. You are in the family. You're loved by this family. And with this family comes responsibilities. I'm not gonna just do everything for you because that would harm you. It would make you think that the whole world is centered around you. And God put me in your life to teach you and to rear you and to raise you that the whole universe and all time and eternity is centered around him. That's why it's important. It's filled up, filled up with the fruit of righteousness. Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Yeah, we just got too much of that. Let's pass a law. There's too much self-control going around, around here. Too much gentleness. He says in verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Are you filled with the fruit of the Spirit? Or are you filled with the flesh? What drives you? What do you live for? Well, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want my kids to do this. I want to go here. I want to do that. That doesn't, that Paul is contrasting the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of the flesh so that we evaluate. And this feeling comes as we abide in Christ. And John 15, amazing passage. I'm just going to read verse 5. I am the vine, Jesus says, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You hear Paul's prayer there? I want you to abound. I want you to be filled up, overflowing with the fruit of righteousness. Who bears much fruit? It's the person who abides in Christ. And Jesus says, for apart from me, what can we do as a church without Jesus? Nothing. What disciple can be made without Jesus? Just my disciples. They won't last. They'll fall away. But if somebody is a disciple of Jesus Christ, they will be filled with the Spirit and they will grow in holiness. And these words that are in this prayer will resonate with their heart. They will, they will pick up and say, I want, I long for this to be more and more realized in my life. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here he gives a verse that helps us understand, wait a second, am I a, how do I abide in Christ and live for Christ? What am I supposed to be doing and not doing? And, and where am I active and where is the Lord active? And, and it's this, this complex Remain in him, abide in him, love him, dwell with him, be in his word, be with his people, and allow him to work through you for the glory of God. 
There isn't a, well, over here, the Lord did it. I'm not helping. He's sovereign. Let him do what he wants to do. Over here, it's all me. I've got to do it all myself. No, Paul worked that out in this beautiful way in Galatians 2.20. He says, I want you to be filled up with Christ. And then he says this, I want you to be filled from Jesus Christ. You see, we're not the source of the goodness that our lives finally produced. The goodness, the fruits that come from our lives, they're not from us. They're from the Lord Jesus. That's what Paul is saying. This is how I'm praying for you. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, where are we going to get this fruit, Paul? It comes through Jesus Christ. It comes from him. He is the source. It's from the Lord Jesus. And Paul wrote about this to the Romans. He wrote about it to the Ephesians. Christ's work in us. There's no room for us to boast. There's no bragging rights for us. It's simply Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans eleven thirty six. For from him and through him and to him are all things. And Paul just bursts out to him be glory forever. Amen. It's from him. It's through him and to him. That's a gospel-centered, God-centered perspective on life and living time and eternity. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, familiar verses to many people. Paul writes, how are we saved? It's for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. So my point and what I'm making in this fruitfulness and what Paul is praying is, it isn't that we pray for people to be saved by grace through faith and then they have to live out their life, their sanctification, their, their work, they're working for God. Now that is all on them and they've got to just grin and bear it and just gut it out and just work it out. No. No, it's... The Lord at work in us, and He's working that out. And we, like Paul, are working with Him for this reason. Not so that we get the glory, but so that He does. And He says, I want you to be filled for a reason. Filled for good works. You're filled to do something. This is the supernatural work of sovereign grace, and Paul is praying it's going somewhere. It isn't salvation for nothing. Paul is stressing this in his prayer so that the people he loves so dearly would press on in spiritual maturity and in gospel ministry, these gospel partnerships. That's why he's saying, this is why you blessed me. This is why you sent Epaphroditus to me. This is why you have been with me from the beginning until now. I get it. You're filled with love. You understand the good works that have been done in and through you. It's been God at work in you, and I want you to rejoice in that. I want you to give him glory, and I want you to press on. I want you to pick your knees up. I want you to get your eyes up. I want you to lift your eyes and lift your head and gain that endurance and run on. Don't sit down. Don't stop. Don't sit by the wayside and say, well, I've done enough. Let somebody else do it now. Don't miss out on that. Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, that word means masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were saved for a reason. We were brought to faith in Christ for a reason. And it goes back to Matthew 5, 16, Jesus saying in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory not to you, but to your Father who's in heaven. Give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
So what kind of fruit should be coming out of my life right now? If I am abiding in Christ, what fruit is coming out of my life right now? What, what fruit is being produced in my life, in our lives right now, in your life? What fruit is being produced? This is the question you have to ask. And how long will that fruit last? How long will the, what, what my life is producing, what is the longevity of that? Is it eternal or is it temporary? What do I see being produced in my life right now that I know is the work of the Holy Spirit? And when you gather in small groups, some, this is the questions, these are the conversations that begin to happen. And you hear people say, hey, I see the Lord giving me, changing me, producing these different desires in me of what I used to be and what I used to think and what I used to do. And he's changing me. He's growing me in grace. And I see him growing others around me and adding people into my life. And we're growing in this grace together. He is producing the fruit and we give honor and glory to him. And number four, Paul says, I want my prayer, I'm praying for you, that you will aim your life to magnify the Lord. Aim to magnify the Lord. This is where it's all going. It's all for something, to the glory and praise of God. This is very God-centered. This is not man-centered in this prayer. He says, I'm praying for you, Philippians, aim to magnify the Lord. This is a life of worship. The chief end of man, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? That we, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you're here. That's why you were given life. That's why he made you in his image is that you would glorify him. Well, that sounds narcissistic. Is God, is he really that self-consumed? Who is greater than God? When people want to go see something that's good, they will sacrifice to go do it. I've told you before, nobody ever pays anything to watch me shoot baskets in my driveway. Why not? Because I'm not that good. It's not that entertaining unless you like to see follies. It's, not that, it's just not that great. What is greater than God? What, we, what would we enjoy that is better than God? He created everything. He created everything that we see, all of those beautiful sceneries that you see on social media, that you see on people's vacations. Who created all of that? Who spoke the galaxies out of his mouth by a word? And what is greater than him that we would enjoy more than that? What can you do to top God? He made you in his image. He made me in his image. What is greater to enjoy? And so that's why the chief end of man is to enjoy. It's to glorify the greatest being ever, the eternal God who made all things for his own glory. And then he shares that with us through Jesus. And we don't deserve it. We can't look at his son and keep our eyesight. But people think I'll stand before him one day and I'll argue with him. And I'll tell him what I think. The psalmist says, Psalm 34, verse 3, 
Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Do you hear this? Do you hear the invitation? That this God, we don't make him greater, okay? We simply look into his greatness. The more that we look into his word, the more that we worship him, we recognize that he is great, he is glorious, he is good. And then the invitation goes out, hey, there's room in this family. He'll take you, me, sinner, yes. That's why he came. That's why he died. He will save you. He will forgive you. He will wash away. He'll give you a new heart. He'll change your desires. He'll change everything about you. And so Paul is praying for them. I'm praying that you will aim to magnify the Lord. What does that mean, Paul? Live to make much of the glory of God. That word doxa, all right? We get the word doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise the Lord. His glory, his splendor, his honor. Understand, this is what I've been trying to set out in this message today. I can live for my glory or I can live for God's glory. You can live for your glory, your name, or you can live for God's glory and God's name. One is very, very small. Me, my glory, my ability, my wisdom, my capacity, my number of years that I will have health and live. Very small. Or I can live for the glory of God. I can live for that which is everlasting, eternal, never-ending, no one can surpass that glory. And this is the choice that is before you, loved ones, today. Whose glory are you living for? Are you living for your glory, for the applause of the people to your name? Or are you living for the glory and the praise of specifically the Lamb of God who was slain for sinners? You can't live for both and neither can I. I can't live for my glory, my name, and of course it's for the glory of God. And so the Lord allows trials in our lives to pull things that are very dear to us and close to us to say, where's your glory? Is your glory in your health wise? Is your glory in the influence your church has in a community? Is that, is that where you glory in? Or do you glory in me? We read it this week. The book of Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That glory is unending. And then Paul says, I want you to live in a way that brings praise to God. Paul's life is exemplary for this. He lived his life in a way that brought honor to God. Everyone that met him, they were going to hear him talk about glory. And it wasn't going to be the glory of done. Do you know who I, you know who I was? I was Saul. You ever hear about Saul, Tarsus? That was me. That was the old little glory. The only, time, the only time he told people about Saul of Tarsus was when he would make the case for, I deserved hell. I was pursuing people that loved Jesus and I was putting them to death. I deserved to die. That's Saul of Tarsus. And that guy died on the road to Damascus spiritually. And I'm alive to Jesus. Can I tell you about his glory? And that's what he lived the rest of his life doing. The book of Acts closes with him sharing the gospel in prison, everybody that would came, come and visit him. He would tell them, hey, so, you know, just imagine being the jailers locked up. They'd be like, how you doing? Great. I'm Paul. I know. Hey, 
Have you heard about Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, how many hours is my shift? And one after another after another came to faith because the more pressure and sunlight that beat down on Paul's life, there was no wax dripping out, melting, that something was fake, hidden, hypocrite. No, this guy's the real deal. And what changed him? I'm glad you asked. Have I told you about Jesus of Nazareth yet? I've heard about this carpenter. Oh, he's more than a carpenter. He's a son of God. He's a son of man. And he changed my life and he'll change your life to live to the praise of his glorious grace. Oh, loved ones, how might this prayer that Paul has reshape my prayer life, your prayer life? How might this prayer change us? How we pray for ourselves personally, how we pray for our families, how we pray for others, how we pray that as a church we would be passionate about the right things, right? That we would be passionate about the right things, not over nothings, things that don't matter. And can I ask you, what is your next step to align your life to make much of Jesus? What is your next step? Are you making much of what? Just, just think in your mind, last week, the last month, what do I make, make much about? Is it about Jesus or is it about something else? Then what's my next step? What's our next step to align our lives to make much of Jesus? And loved ones, this is a prayer. Can you see, can you see how this can apply? Lord, would you help me to abound in love? Lord, would you help me to approve what is excellent? Lord, would you help me to abide in Christ? It's so hard to do, to be still and know that he is God, right? Psalm 46, 10. Lord, would you help me? I want to magnify you, Lord. And, and then we can say, Lord, my family, I want us, my family to abound in love. Lord, I want my family to approve what is excellent. Lord, I want my family to abide in Christ. I want my family to aim their lives to magnify you, Lord, and I can't make that happen, right? We start praying for our church that way. We start praying for our small groups that way. We start praying for our communities this way. That's why it's here, to teach us how to pray. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, it is our prayer right from your word that we will abound in love more and more. Lord, I pray for the people of grace that we will abound in love more and more with all knowledge and discernment. Father, I pray that we will approve what is excellent, Lord, that we would be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. In a few moments, we will be observing and remembering the Lord through his body broken and his blood shed, and we will remember that you are coming again. May we approve what is excellent, Lord. Help us to abide in Christ. It is so easy for me to get busy doing and serving and just working and not just simply abide in your presence. Lord, help us as a church to abide in you. Lord, we think about even right now as a significant step in our church's life and history as all these bids are out and they're due to be back in this week, this Wednesday. Father, we are asking you to make a way and we cannot do it. It's not by might. It's not by power, Lord. It's by your spirit. And so we are praying that you will do above all that we can ask or think. 
and that you will make a way forward so that this ministry can impact hundreds upon even thousands and even the world in a greater way for the glory of God, Father. We are intending, we are committing, we will aim our lives to the glory of God, to magnify, to make much of Jesus Christ, Lord. That is our desire. You have blessed us beyond what we deserve. You have blessed me beyond what I deserve, Lord. I do not deserve the great joy and privilege to serve as an under-shepherd in this congregation, but that's a gift of grace from you. These people are a gift of grace. They're my joy. So I thank you, and I pray, God, that you will help me to be clearer in my aim to make much of you, that we will be clearer in our aim to magnify the Lord and give you the praise for which you alone are worthy. Help the person that has not yet come all the way to faith in Christ that today, whether they're here or they're watching online, today would be the day when they admit their sin to God and receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior and trust in Him. God, thank you that you save sinners and you change us into and you will finish what you started. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are are loved.